Lord, we present to you today our tithes and our offerings from humble hands. Lord, we recognize that these are not of our own doing, but by your grace that we've received them. And so we give back to you. But we do it also in faith. Lord, we do it humbly. We do it in faith, trusting you to take and to use these things and do according to all that you will. And Lord, we also do it with gratefulness. Our hearts are thankful for your goodness to us, especially in Christ Jesus, that you have saved us from our sins, that you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into your kingdom of light. So would you help us to to walk in the same way that we give to you today and in humility, with thankfulness, uh, trusting you in faith in all of our ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're in Matthew's gospel. This is our second uh, study or second week in our study. And I am not setting a precedent for covering a chapter a week. It just happens that's how we're starting. So uh, we'll, we will slow down at some points uh, and, and take less than a chapter. But you'll see why we take it all together today. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And when going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what, may be, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would take it now and apply it to our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us understanding that we may grow in our confidence in all that Christ is for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the chapter covers uh, a number of events, but as you can see, it's, it's one big storyline. You, you see Herod from beginning to end. Uh, he is one of the key characters in this story. He's clearly the antagonist of the story. We also see Jesus as a key figure. He is the one who is preserved throughout this storyline. Uh, not really an actor as just an infant and a toddler through these years, uh, but he is a, a key figure. The protagonist of the story is God the Father, who is barely mentioned in this text. It's only referenced when Matthew says an angel of the Lord. That's the only reference we get. But we see his hand working through the whole chapter. We see that he is the main character because he is the one who performs the main action. And Matthew portrays this action in the protection of the Messiah by the sending of angels and dreams and through providence to direct and redirect his people according to his plan. But there is another significant aspect to his action that does not even occur here. It occurred long before these events that occurred here, and that is in the act of foretelling. God had sent his prophets. He had been telling his people where the Messiah was going to be born, what the Messiah was going to look like. He had given them insight into what the Messiah or the Christ, the Savior, would be. And so Matthew here, writing primarily to a Jewish audience in order to convey to them, this is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, takes and applies four prophecies for us to help us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. There are wise men and kings in faraway places. We're going to look at all that. But the main action that Matthew is relating to his readers here and what we should keep in mind is that God has begun and is executing his rescue plan. The Son, who is God in the flesh, has been born according to the promises. And yet, as we know from the very beginning, from the garden, and the prophecy given in Genesis 3.15, there would be one who would come, but yet the serpent would strike the heel and then he would crush the head of the serpent. And so Satan has been on the prowl ever since. He has been trying to disrupt or undo this plan that is in place. Satan is a vandal. He is a counterfeiter. He's not original. He's not creative. His MO really hasn't changed much from the garden. Did God really say, and don't trust God, he's not really good to you? Those were basically the two things that the, uh, uh, the serpent presented to Eve there in the garden, and he's been doing the same thing ever since. Like a lion seeking whom he may devour, Satan desires to disrupt this rescue plan of God, in this case by destroying the Christ child. He has tried throughout history to prevent the line of promise. He has tried throughout history to, to stir up discord and strife, envy and pride, power and division, immorality and selfishness. If you think immediately after the garden, Cain and Abel, and shortly after that, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, the Pharaoh in Egypt against the people of Israel, the Canaanites with their pagan worship, the Philistines with their giant, adultery and murder at the hand of David, 
a divided kingdom, exile, and then seeming silence. Yet God was not absent, nor was he silent, but abiding to his own sovereign plan that at just the right time, according to the promises that he gave, he would bring this rescue plan into action. So what is behind the scene in these events is a spiritual battle in the heavenlies, not just at this time, but really all throughout history, especially at this time through Herod, but even uh, continuing on to our own day. Uh, Today, we talk about the Magi, we talk about Herod, Egypt, Archelaus, and Galilee, but what is really happening and what I want you to see is that God is acting in his omnipotence so that even though Satan attempts to wreck it all, he doesn't succeed, nor will he ever. Satan will not succeed. This is what I want you to hear and take home today. So if you're tired and going to tune out, this is the point. This is it. I'll tell you right up front. I want you to hold fast to your sure salvation in Christ Jesus. Satan will not succeed. If you are trusting in Christ, he will bring you safely home. Satan will succeed not not only in, in, in the efforts that we see in this narrative, but in our current day, in our own lives, in our culture, in politics, in world events. Satan will not succeed. Because the father ensured the protection of the son in this account, the son died and was raised to victory forever. And because he sits on the throne, now interceding for us and reigning, we can be assured of our ultimate protection. The same omnipotent God who protected the son in these times has promised to protect us so that not even a hair can fall from our head against his will. So now looking in verse 1, we see Matthew transition, having just told the birth story uh, from uh, from chapter 1. He now transitions, talking about these men from the east who've come to Jerusalem. You notice how he kind of stacks up some of the details. This is by way of a reminder or giving us some some insight into what he is about to present. tells us where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's going to come into play in a moment. Uh, Telling us who was the king, Herod. He's clearly a, a key figure in this whole story. And then pointing us to where the wise men first came. They didn't come straight to Bethlehem. They came to Jerusalem. God led them there by the star first before he led them to Bethlehem. And this is all providentially orchestrated uh, for God's purpose. Now, he doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. And I know we've looked at Matthew at Christmas time before, so I'm not going to dive into a lot of the details that I have at Christmas about who the wise men were, or what the star was, or any of this stuff. I'm just going to move very quickly. But if you want to know more, talk to me, talk to me later. But mostly, this is from our songs, right? We Three Kings of Orion R and other uh, songs that we sing that we've kind of notated in our heads that there were three wise men. That and our, our nativity sets all have three wise men, if they're, if they're any, any good at all. And while the songs and nativity sets are not harmful, I'm not sure that they're necessarily helpful, uh, but, uh, but there, there were probably much more than three uh, in this entourage. They did bring three gifts, and that's why I think the songwriters chose to write of three kings. By the way, they weren't kings either. They were magi. Uh, but they, um, they, they, they come into town, and there's, uh, there's enough of them that people notice, so much so that the word gets back to the king. And there is an uproar in the town. So it's most likely uh, men of this, this status as counselors to a king. That's what magi were. 
They were uh, mostly counselors. They were educated uh, men that would have advised kings and so forth. Yes, they, they dabbled in what and in their day might have been understood to be science. We would see a lot of it as astrology or some as even as sorcery. Scripture always speaks against that. But it's a broad term used to describe this role in the ancient uh, Far East. And so uh, these, this status of men would, have not tra- would not have traveled by themselves. They would have had assistants and servants and uh, security protection and so forth. It was probably a large entourage. What we do know about them is this. They knew a bit about astronomy because they were following a star. I've often thought about this when I walk the dog at night because the stars are often big and beautiful here in Florida. And I look up and see and I think, how does all this work? And I don't even, I still can't find the Big Dipper. I have to use the little app, you know, to look up and see what I'm looking at. I, I took two years of astronomy in, uh, in college and I still can't find it. So I, I often think of how they figured this out. So they were studied, they were learned, they understood where the stars were supposed to be in the night and so forth. They also came with gifts worthy of a king. So this means they had means to acquire those gifts. They had some wealth. Maybe they were sent by a king to do this, the king that they advised. Um, But they also understood what a king should receive. They were, in a sense, cultured. They knew what to give a king. Uh, We know that it had been revealed to them that there was a king to be born, a king of the Jews, because that's who they came asking for. And we know that they traveled quite a distance, probably from modern-day Iraq or Iran. So that's what we do know about them. And they come into Jerusalem after months, maybe even more than a year of travel, and they begin asking where to find this child. And the asking or the size of their group or both of these things combined was enough to stir uh, 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 enough to, to get the king's attention. King found out about it. And we see that he was troubled. Now, we'll, we'll touch on who Herod was and why anything troubled Herod. Herod was paranoid, so any sense of disruption, uh, and then when the question came out, where is this one who is born king of the Jews, he perceived it as a threat. It just it sent Herod off the rails, and this was very common. This was his, uh, probably a narcissist, his personality, whatever his disorder, and especially in his latter years, and he died a horrible death, which we won't get into, but he, he was just racked with paranoia. And so he was troubled, but we're also told that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him, which gives us some insight to how the people reflected kind of the, the, uh, the personality of their king. They, they didn't want their king upset because they knew when he got upset, bad things happened. So everyone was upset by this group coming in. Um, Herod, we know, was a tyrant. Uh, he was paranoid. He was very cruel. His reputation was a person uh, who was unafraid to, to stop, move, remove, kill anyone who got in his way, including his own family members. The historian Josephus said, Herod was a man of great barbarity toward all men equally and a slave to his passion. Uh, even if he was just a slave to his passion, you know that people who are slaves to their passions are usually tyrannical. But when he showed great barbarity toward all men equally, it makes him especially brutal. Caesar Augustus is known to have said it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. And we know, again, without going into great detail, because I don't like squeamish, I'm squeamish, I don't like gory stuff. But if you want to read up on it, go to Britannica or some other encyclopedia. He died an awful death. Because his final years, uh, I mean, his health was racked, I think, in part from all the stress of the paranoia. He literally uh, just, he feared everybody and everything, and he was constantly scheming in order to gain more power or keep what power he had. So Herod is troubled by this news, and because 
understandably so, he is to be king over the Jews. That's the position Caesar's given him. And so he feels that this is a threat. He calls on the Sanhedrin or the scribes and the chief priests to find out where the Christ has been born. So without telling us explicitly, Matthew tells us that Herod has connected the dots. He goes from getting this rumor of people asking about where the king of the Jews is to be born, and he goes to the Sanhedrin with the question, where is the Christ to be born? He connects that this king is to be the Messiah. So Again, Matthew doesn't elaborate on this, but he tells us through through the implication of this that, that Herod has he's done his homework. He knows the Jews. He knows over whom he is ruling. He knows their customs. He knows their religion. He knows their history. And so he goes to the scribes and the chief priests, and they give him the answer. It's Bethlehem. And they refer back to the prophet uh, Micah. They also quote, uh, they merge two passages from Scripture, a passage from Micah 5.2, and another from Second Samuel, the passage in Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, who coming forth is from old, from ancient days. In Second Samuel 5.2, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in, in, brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So that first passage is one that we're familiar with. We often quote, quote and read it at, at Christmas services and so forth. The second passage is often one that's not mentioned. It's from uh, the Second Samuel account of David being anointed as king. So that's who that he is speaking of here. And what this tells us is the religious leaders of the day understood something about the Messiah that we may not give them credit for. They not only knew the location, but they knew something of what he was to be like, that he was to shepherd my people Israel. So they knew where he was to be born, they knew of his Davidic line, and they knew something of his role as a shepherd king. That was what they were to be looking out for. And so here for the religious leaders comes a rumor that such a person has been born. They're asked about it and nothing. Crickets. I mean, maybe it's just not recorded, but you would think that the religious leaders would at least be cautiously inquisitive as to where this one who is born king of the Jews, but they just simply give the answer and it's like they go back to work. Herod, on the other hand, calls the wise men in secretly. We're not told why it was secret, but we can guess because we know Herod already. Um, Herod is clearly scheming in this account with the wise men because he asks them about the timing of the star. We understand why he's asking about the timing of the star. I think it's interesting that that the, he asks that question. He's trying to figure out how old the child is because he already has a plan in place. He's going to just take out all the male children that age and under. But of course, he is scheming and he says back to the Magi in verse 8, uh, report back to me that I may come and worship him. Last thing on his mind, okay? He, he's a liar and, and, and clearly was lying. He wanted to eliminate what was a perceived threat. So the wise men leave Jerusalem. The star appears again. Notice that. The star that they had followed to Jerusalem, it says it appears again. And it guided them to Bethlehem. Again, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this, but it's interesting when you think of a star that led them from the east toward the west and now is leading them south toward Bethlehem. Again, won't get into the weeds on that. Many have wondered, we've all wondered, what is the star? What is going on here? Many have speculated. Let me sum it up simply as this. The star was something special. 
whether it was a means of providential alignment of existing stars or something supernatural like the Shekinah glory that went before the Israelites in the wilderness, the star was something special. It served a special role. And we see this not only in its function, but even in its appearance before the wise men. Whatever we might know or not know about it, we know that God saw to it using whatever means he chose to use to get these men from the east to show them exactly where to go. First to Jerusalem, and then later at the right time to go on, not just to Bethlehem, but it says it stopped over the house where they were, to the very house where Mary and Joseph were living. And it says upon entering that they saw the child and they fell down and they worshiped him in verse 11. And they gave him gifts, gifts that were fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were valuable gifts, gifts that Mary and Joseph may not have have, uh, ever even touched with their own hands, things that they had only probably seen with their eyes and heard about, uh, the, the, the gifts themselves. And this likely would have been a huge blessing, especially the gold because of its value in their lives. So the wise men are here warned after they leave uh, from Mary and Joseph's house. They are not to return to Herod. They follow that instruction. And at the same time, Joseph is also given a warning that he must flee with his family for safety. In verse 13, he gets this, uh, you know, this abrupt news that there is this threat. The angel says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. We don't have to think hard to know how traumatizing news, news like this would be for any of us to hear that there is someone with the power of King Herod and all that that was behind him, his army, his government, and everything, uh, and and really Rome, uh, that they want to destroy someone you love. I mean, this, this had to just rattle Joseph to his core. And yet in Joseph, we see this incredible faith. He trusted God, and it's apparent of that because he gets up and he leaves and takes them. It seems like immediately. It doesn't tell us that they're, you know, he waited a few days. It says he left in the night because it was a dream. We're left to believe that he left after the dream. He woke Mary up, got Jesus up, grabbed what they could, threw what they could, and, and, and they probably didn't have much anyway, and they began their journey southward to Egypt. We could note that his obedience is that of a righteous man, a characteristic that Matthew has already ascribed to Joseph in chapter 1. And we know righteousness is by faith. So we can say that Joseph trusted God. I think how hard it would have been to get a dream like this. You know, we always wish that we had dreams, don't we? We're like, oh, you know, if we had dreams then we'd know exactly what to do. Or if God would send us an email or a text message, you know, wouldn't it be nice to know exactly what to do? Folks, we are way better off with the Word of God that we have and the Holy Spirit indwelling us than one who has dreams. Um, I hope that you'll believe me on that. Maybe we'll unpack that more someday. Well, the trip went, to, uh, went down south to Egypt. Uh, this would have been no small undertaking given that it was uh, you know, a young baby, uh, the, the means that they had middle of the night, just the terrain itself. <clears throat> it's a very barren Sinai Peninsula. Uh, they, this would have been hard if they had had time to plan and prepare. They didn't. They didn't have that luxury. They simply had to go. Um, some have speculated that the gold played a role in this, that that provided the means for them to go because they were down there for quite some time. They had quite a journey before them that maybe the Lord had used that providentially to give them the means for the journey itself. Historians tell us that in Egypt at this time, there were over a million Jews living there. And so Joseph and Mary would have found others with whom to settle, who spoke their language, shared their culture, yet still they were living as refugees. 
And that's, that's always hard. You know, most of us have never had that experience, uh, that the difficulty of living where you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know where you'll be. Maybe you're staying in temporary housing. We get to sample it sometimes. You know, if you've ever missed a flight and had to stay in a hotel at night, or maybe you've, uh, your house got flooded and you had to move out. Those are hard things and they disrupt our lives. But this is in a whole nother category. Joseph and Mary, yes, Joseph got a dream. He knew exactly where to go but we're, the angel didn't tell him what was next. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, for how long? You know, how long, where do we go? Where do we stay? What do we do? How do, we, how do I provide for my family? All the questions. This was a difficult, difficult life for Joseph and Mary. But yet through all of this, our sovereign Lord was working providentially, even through the tyrant's plots, to lead them to Egypt that this prophecy of Hosea might be fulfilled, which we read in Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We have seen this in uh, a number of our studies, uh, Revelation, we've seen this in Jeremiah, even in Genesis, that prophecies often have an immediate fulfillment and a further off fulfillment, and that's the case with this one. The immediate fulfillment, uh, the context in which Hosea was speaking was that of of Israel being led uh, out of Egypt at the Exodus account. But here, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains the fuller completion of this prophecy, that it was Jesus, God's Son, who would also be called out of Egypt. While they were still there living, they were there for some time, uh, maybe a year or longer, uh, Herod realizes that the wise men are not going to come back. This is in verse 16. Uh, It says that he realized he had been tricked by the wise men. That was how he perceived it. Uh, However, we would describe that. The wise men were wise, shrewd, obedient to the Lord's command. We might call it something else. Uh, You can see a bit of Herod's personality. Everyone's tricking him. Everyone's against him. Everyone's trying to get him. There's the paranoia. And he becomes furious. And in his fury, he sent For all the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two to be killed. Now, the text actually says in Bethlehem in the region. So we really don't know how many children died. Uh, And this uh, unimaginable act is, I mean, think of he killed one child, you know, uh, who had done no wrong against him. It would have been a horrid act. But he went on this killing spree, uh, likely through his, his, his soldiers, to just, you know, the possibility, maybe, one of these could come and grow up one day and threaten me, which wasn't really a threat at all. He was about to die within a year. You know, it just, it shows you what sin can do to people. Just absolutely decimate any sense of, of, of conscience or anything. Uh, he just willingly portrays in the, or, or, or uh, participates in this evil. And so here again, Matthew connects us to another prophecy. This one, Normally isn't familiar, but since we just went through Jeremiah, maybe it's a little bit more familiar, even though it was a while ago since we were in Jeremiah 31. But the prophecy from Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Rachel, uh, we know, uh, if you were with us, that uh, Rachel's long been dead when Jeremiah writes this. So he's using her as, a, as an image or a portrayal to represent the people of uh, Israel and Judah. And that's because Rachel can represent both kingdoms. She gave birth to um, uh, Joseph, who was the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, so representing the northern kingdom, and also Benjamin, representing the southern kingdom. And both kingdoms were, of course, carried off into exile And so Jeremiah is uh, using Rachel as the mother, in a sense, of of the two kingdoms 
weeping over those who were no more. Uh, They would be carried off. Uh, We saw at the end of uh, Jeremiah, however, that it wasn't the end of the story, that it was through Jeconiah, the last rightful king, that the the storyline would continue. And Matthew connects us with that in his genealogy. Remember Jeconiah, who's the only one that's mentioned twice, son is Shealtiel, and then on all the way to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. And so what Matthew is doing here is, again, just like with Hosea, connecting us to the prophecy of Jeremiah with a longer-range fulfillment, that the event of when these sons were killed by the hand of Pharaoh, and they are no more, that this is fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy. Well, in verses 19 to the end, Herod dies. Joseph receives another dream. While he's in Egypt, he's told he can return to Israel that the threat of Herod is gone, and Joseph obeys in faith. And as they make the journey uh, northward, uh, probably with the plan of just going back to Bethlehem in Judea, uh, he finds out that Archelaus is now the ruler over that region. Now, you remember Archelaus. I mentioned him on Easter Sunday when we talked about the parable, and this was kind of the background. This is when all of that occurred. Archelaus was the son of Herod. He would have... um, maybe rightfully been sought as, uh, seen as the, uh, the, the, the next king. But that's not the way the Romans uh, did business. And so he kind of had to earn it. And in an effort to establish his power and, uh, and, and really fear over the Jewish people, he had tried to quell some, some protests after Herod died, and he killed a, a number of people. And so when he went to Rome to receive the kingdom, uh, a number of Jews went as well to protest that, and, and, and Caesar took his time. He didn't coronate him as king. So Joseph now finds out Archelaus is also a threat. He doesn't need to be in Judea, and so he's led instead. He's warned again, another dream, verse 22, and instead goes northward to Galilee to the city of Nazareth. And here for the fourth time, we get another prophecy fulfilled, although this one is a little bit different. In the other three, Matthew uses the singular for prophet. Here he uses the plural, and most think that he's referring, he's joining together a number of prophecies. There's not one particular text we can go to and find that Jesus was promised to be born in Nazarene. And so the thought is, and I think this is is fair, although I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily um, fight anyone over this, but it's the whole idea of how Nazarenes were perceived in this point in history. They were despised people. They were looked down upon. It was not cool to be a Nazarene. You may remember the account between Nathaniel and Jesus in John 1 when Philip comes and says to Nathaniel, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, there, that's the gist of what a Nazarene is. Of course, Philip said, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael uh, coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. If you don't think that Jesus had a sense of humor, you can just see that unfolding right there. That you, Just chuckling, saying, you know, here we go. Here's a guy who speaks his mind. He knows exactly uh, uh, what he thinks. And so this is, uh, you know, fairly a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, that he would come and be born as one who was a Nazarene. So the fulfillment of his birth in Bethlehem, but yet he grew up in Nazareth so that he was known as not Jesus of Bethlehem, but Jesus of Nazareth to fulfill yet another prophecy of one who was despised and looked down upon. So the prophet spoke. And their words came to pass in the person of Jesus. 
This fits with Matthew's purpose, as we said last week. His purpose was to write primarily to a Jewish audience that they might know this is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. He was born in Bethlehem. He was called out of Egypt. He was protected through the harrowing ordeal of Herod's execution of the infants in Bethlehem. He came in humility as a Nazarene, a derogatory term to many Jews of that day. What might have seemed to us as humanly impossible, the orchestration of all of these events to fulfill these prophecies, how was it all going to happen? No one really could have made sense of it on the other side of Jesus' birth. Yet the God who is sovereign over all the affairs of man orchestrated all these events to bring to fulfillment the promises that he made long ago through the prophets. And that same God is at work today, orchestrating our very lives, orchestrating the events in this world uh, to carry out his sovereign purposes, not just on the big scene, uh, scheme, the big picture, but in our lives personally. That means that all matters over which we lose sleep, all of the events that cause us to worry, all of the evils perpetuated in our time that maybe rightly so make us angry. None of these things will stop the plans of God. He has promised to build his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as I said in the beginning, Satan will not succeed. And he has promised to hold on to all who trust on him so that no one will be able to snatch us out of his hand. And he has promised to bring us to perfect protection in the end, perfect safety, because he knows us intimately, because he made us, he cares about us, he knows that, that we need to hear this today. Remember the words of Jesus who said, I do, not fear, I do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than any sparrows. Many sparrows. You could say any sparrows, all the sparrows. I think any of those would be interchangeable. You're more valuable, more valuable than the birds. And not, not a, a sparrow can't fall without his will allowing it. He knows our frames. He made us. He knows we're but dust. He knows our frailty. He formed us in our mother's womb. So in your worry and in your fret and in your anxiety and in your trying to make sense of all that is going on, Look to the cross, where steadfast love and faithfulness meet, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. And see in this giving of the Son as our ransom, the great rescue plan, this is all the evidence we need that we have nothing to fear. The writer of Hebrews said, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Put your trust in Christ. Look to his cross. Look to him, our good shepherd, our mediator, the forerunner on our behalf. He is our sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. He will bless you. He will keep you. He will make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And he will give you his peace. Let's pray. Father, as we think of 
this story, a story that's familiar so that maybe we don't feel the weight of it at times, uh, all of the details that you superintended and worked through to accomplish your purposes, we, we really, really should be comforted by this. Would you do that for us? Would you help us to see the incredible intricacy of which you work to sovereignly rule over all the affairs of man so that we would not fear so that we would not think that that there's a chance that Satan might be successful. Lord, keep us. Hold us fast that we might cling to the sure anchor of our souls. Cause us to believe. Cause our faith to deepen that we may not waver. Lord, as we carry on, that we might persevere until the end. Help us to run well the race that's set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response. Number